Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you today on this chilly, wet Sunday. Um, A special thank you for coming, even though there's a football game at like 4 o'clock today. Um, I know it's common practice to think, I can't do anything else but Super Bowl and Super Bowl Sunday, but here you are showing it's possible to do two things at once. Um, But on the other side of it, I stayed up late smoking queso last night, preparing for the game, so I'm going to eat terribly and wonderfully today without you. Um, Now, today we are continuing our uh, series on Jesus' teaching here in chapter 11. Jesus' invitation to the world is this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so for the last few weeks, we've been kind of unpacking this. Um, If you haven't been here for that and are interested more in hearing about those particulars, um, you can find those sermons on our website or on our podcast. Um, But today we're going to keep going into chapter 12 of Matthew where we see some of this in action. But I think here's at the heart. What do we find when we do hear this invitation from Jesus and we come to him? What we find in him is one who is strong enough to not only remove but carry the heavy burdens that are heaped upon humanity. We find one who offers a true unburdening. And I think a true unburdening looks like an entrusting. That we're not just looking for freedom from responsibility. We're not just looking for freedom from our biggest worries or freedom from our hardships. What we're looking for is somebody who's able to carry those things and carry us with it. That's what we're looking for. I think if you compare it, say, to like Buddhism or something, the idea is to just let go of everything. Stop caring about everything because... It's not ultimate or it's not eternal. Jesus is saying you can unburden because he cares about it. Isn't that good news? So you don't have to worry so much about saying, I have to stop caring about what I care about. Instead, we're saying, I care so much about these things, only God can care for it. If you've had pastoral conversations with me, you'll hear me say the most responsible thing you can do for an area that you're really worried about is make Jesus responsible. That's the most responsible thing you can do is put it into the hands of somebody who can actually handle it. Because our biggest cares are are things that we love deeply. People, children, family, occupations. These things matter. And so we need to not just Let them go and live as though they don't matter. Who's good at that? Typically the irresponsible. 
What we want is to be able to have someone to entrust them to. And this is this offer where Jesus is saying, you can come to me and I will carry the weight of the world. And your job is to be yoked to me. To be tied to me in an intimate friendship in which he carries the bulk of the weight, the bulk of the load, and we get to be with him as participants in that. So it's not complete passivity, but the bulk of our energies goes to not carrying the heavy loads ourselves. The bulk of our energies goes to staying focused and staying close to the one who can. That makes sense? That's where our devotion, that's where our effort comes into play, is to say, I want to be with the one who can do this. And the beautiful thing is that he has a very specific way of doing it, a very specific way that he accomplishes all of this. And so we get to focus on being with him, and the change in terrain and circumstances provides all these kinds of variables, but he is consistent and his way is consistent. And that's where we get to put all of our efforts is into trusting his way. And then Jesus adds this little bit in the invitation that the tone of the training that we'll get to learn from him, how to live. Jesus is offering a different way of living, but the way he's going to train that or mentor it in your life is with what? Harshness and intensity? Is that how he describes our training? No. The training is from a teacher who is gentle and lowly in heart. So how should that set the tone for what we believe about the way Christianity functions and feels? If Jesus is saying, my heart of hearts is gentle and lowly. If you want to know a secret about me, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Do you think that that matters? Do you think we should read that tone into everything that we read from the Scriptures? But this is the way Jesus is saying that He'll train us, that He'll walk with us, that He'll lead us, is that He'll be gentle and lowly with us. And that's the necessary ingredient for true change, for true transformation. If you look at like the educational sciences, the psychological sciences, one of the big questions that comes out of them is when they do a treatment or they do therapy or they do these types of things to try to help people, why do some people experience so much change and some people don't? We find this a lot in pilgrimage, which is our, our, our discipleship path that we lead people on here in the church. Some people are like, this changed my life. And other people are just like, eh, heard it before. Don't really, you know, no, no big impact, no big benefit to me. And here's what the scientists would say about why that is. It has a lot to do with the tone of the inner conversation of the person. That if their inner conversation is predominantly harsh, angry, and judgmental towards themselves, your nervous system responds to that as though it's an environmental threat. And what happens when you have an environmental threat to you? 
what do you do? You like hunker down into the things that have worked for you in the past. So basically, what the science tells us is that your body, your mind, the way it functions, because of that inner conversation of harshness, treats it as a threat that goes, we've got to just stick to doing what we know how to do. How much change comes from that posture? A lot? No. You become an immovable object, don't you? And then you walk away going, why didn't it work for me? Here, what we see is that the voice of Jesus is the opposite. The voice of Jesus is gentle and lowly, meaning not only is it gentle, but it's kind and understanding. And here's the beauty of God, is that what we see in Him is that he's so self-confident, he's so assured in his ability to save, that he can be gentle in his applications to do it. Insecurity breeds harshness, doesn't it? Insecurity breeds anger. Insecurity tries to force things. Confidence is gentle. And so this is the way Jesus works with people is that he wants to create change through a a voice that's speaking to you of all of his accomplishments for you and removing the pressure off you. And instead of being mad at you that you couldn't save yourself, you couldn't change yourself, you couldn't be better at carrying more responsibilities, Jesus is saying, you were never made for that. And I'm not mad at you for that. All of that points to your need for me. That's probably enough good news to close my computer and end this, isn't it? Isn't it? So that's the ground we've covered so far. So here's the question it kind of leads us to now. How does this make us feel? How does this make life in the community of followers of Jesus feel when the yoke is easy and the burden is light? Dallas Willard, one of my favorite theologians, somebody asked him, how would you describe what it feels like to follow Jesus or what it means? And He said, relaxed. Isn't that a challenging answer? Who feels predominantly relaxed? We like the concept, but in reality, am I living a relaxed life? I pretend on Instagram. I post pictures of the beach and the forest and just like relaxed. Living life on the island. But inside, I'm on the beach and in the forest because I'm freaking out on the inside. But this is, I think, the culture that following Jesus creates is relaxed. So let's see how it works out. In this story, in chapter 12, Jesus and the disciples, after this whole teaching, are walking, most likely, and what we're going to see here is they're walking to the synagogue. And it's not just Jesus and his disciples, it's also the Pharisees. I like to think they've heard Jesus' invitation and actually are walking with him because they want it. His whole come-to-me invitation, they're going, let's go with him. And they're walking with him. I actually think that they want what he's offering them. And then what we see in this story 
is the disciples are showing something quite conspicuous. They are relaxed. And they're relaxed on a day that is not known in this culture at that time as being relaxed, which we're going to get to the irony of that in a minute. In this day, in this story, it's called the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is a special day according to the creation narrative back in Genesis of the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law where God gives the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath is the Fourth Commandment, which is that you are to keep the seventh day, the Sabbath day, holy for rest. And the idea, the vision behind it is that you work, you don't work, you chill out, you prepare all your food the day before, and you just spend the day enjoying the fact that God has done all the work to create the universe. Enjoy the fact that God has done all the work to redeem Israel from Egypt. To spend the day enjoying the fact that God is merciful and loving and providing. This is the vision of the Old Testament for the Sabbath. And so what we see here is the disciples with Jesus are doing that. They're walking and they're just naturally grabbing the stalks of grain on the side of the road and running their hand up the stalk and collecting the wheat in their hand. Has anyone ever done that? I grew up in Saskatchewan. Okay, and so this is what we did. We'd be like, Mom, I'm hungry. She'd be like, go to the field, collect grain, eat it. <laughs> but my favorite snack growing up was wheat crunch. Has anyone ever had wheat crunch? None of you prairie people? My brother has. Lydia? Okay, wheat crunch is kind of like corn nuts, but wheat. And so there's like salt and vinegar kind. And prepping this sermon, I was like looking up on Amazon. I'm like, where can I buy wheat crunch? It's like 40 bucks. I was like, I can't buy 40 bucks of wheat crunch. But I, anyway, it sounds great. But you should try it sometime. Now, this is essentially what's happening. Is they're just collecting the grain because they're hungry. And they're just eating it walking along, making their way to the synagogue. Now here's the problem. The Pharisees can't turn off that part of their heart, that part of their mind that's rule-keeping. For them, rest doesn't actually come on the Sabbath because holy days require serious intensity. And Sabbath is a day to perform one's duty towards God. And so the things that they're doing, from what we know of their teaching, is they're counting their steps. Because there's only so many steps you can take on the Sabbath before it's considered work. Now this isn't in the Old Testament. This is part of their elders' traditions. They're, they're preparing to show up at the synagogue, to show themselves as pious and to play the part. And so on this walk to the synagogue, this is what we end up with, is this dynamic. Those who are really taking on the yoke of Jesus are relaxing. And those who haven't are still performing. And you can almost hear the heart of the Pharisee leap with condemnation. Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're all over it. Maybe for a moment they've settled into this little culture of relaxation, but all of a sudden they're jolted like a bolt of lightning to go, hey! Stop it! And so they make this known to Jesus. And this is the tricky thing about the yoke of Jesus. 
is that for those who are exhausted, the yoke is a glorious relief. Glorious relief. But for those who are self-assured and self-righteous and committed to performance, the yoke of Jesus is a thorn in the soul. For the humble, it's relief to the soul. This is what Jesus says, you'll find rest for your soul. But for the performer, this is agitation. And it drives them nuts. Isn't this one of the problems of church? Because this kind of spirit is not just in the church, because there are always some bad actors, though there are bad actors within the church. But this spirit is in the church because it's in me. And because it's in all of us. We've got these parts where we know we're humble about, where we're like, I know I need Jesus here, I can't do it. But we've also got these other parts of us where we're like, but this area, I am killing it. And I should probably be the authority on this around here. <laughs> Maybe I should get, keep things a little bit because I know the standard we should keep. We've got these parts of us that kind of come out. So I think the question I want to hit today is how does the church become a place with a healthy yoke in Jesus and that can handle this when this spirit rises up in us, in others, in each other. Now what we see from Jesus in his response to all of this, and the first thing is this, is that Jesus gives two biblical arguments. I don't have time to unpack them all. And I've got way too much material on that stuff. But basically Jesus starts in both biblical arguments with this beginning phrase. Have you not read? Which is an awesome phrase for somebody who's a little sarcastic like me. Because it's kind of like, a, oh, sorry, I thought you were big on the Scriptures. That's kind of Jesus' little like dig here to be like, oh, you haven't read this? It's, it's in there. You're, you're not reading the whole thing, just parts of it? Because Jesus does his homework. Jesus knows his reasonings behind this, and they're um, consistent with the whole of the Scriptures. They're consistent with the heart of God from the beginning all the way to the end. And because doing your homework does matter. We need to be big on the Scriptures. Jesus comes to these good gospel conclusions and this clarity about the heart of God, not because he's done away with the Scriptures, but because he gets the Scriptures. Okay? And the two examples he gives is of David and his men eating the bread of the presence. So the bread of the presence was this bread that was part of the sacrificial system to God in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. And the bread was meant to represent the 12 different tribes. There's lots of different layers here. And then in this story, David, who's meant to be the one anointed as king, is being chased by Saul who's an evil king and who God has rejected. All this stuff. There's lots of stuff going on. But then David comes and hides out at a temple and he's starving. He's like, give us some bread so we can just keep going. And the priest at the time says, all I have is the bread of the presence, which only the priests are supposed to eat. But he allows David and his man to eat because of their purity, their state of heart, where they're at. 
And God doesn't judge him for it. God doesn't punish him for it. The other piece of the biblical narrative is that the priests in the Mosaic law had to work every day of the week. So even though the rest of the nation is on Sabbath, the priests still have to offer up a lamb in the morning and a lamb at night. Offer up a lamb. Sorry. Offer up a lamb at night to... Um, to continue the worship of the people of God even on the Sabbath. And so these are the two biblical uh, examples Jesus gives to say, look, it's not this like hard and fast rule all the time that there's no possible work ever given. But there are higher goods that need to be accomplished. There are higher goods that, that the Sabbath makes permissions for. And then the last piece that Jesus uses to argue to the to Pharisees to give his, um, his understanding of this is that he says his presence is, a, is much greater than any of that. Because the whole temple system is foreshadowing the future that's to come. The Sabbath is foreshadowing a world in which all of life is rest in God's perfect provision. All of evil is dealt with. And all of this is coming. And so the Sabbath day is an actual foretaste of the eternal Sabbath that's to come. This is how far off their discernment gets, is that now God is with them in flesh. And God is there providing them with rest and saying, come to me and I'll care for you. And they're going, we've got to still be sticklers about the rules here. Instead of enjoying the fact that Yahweh is present with them in body. This is how far off their conventional wisdom is from reality. Now verse 7, we see it, it, it continues on. Jesus says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. They, the, the Pharisees believe at this time that the heart of the law is to call humanity to a life of sacrifice as a solution to sin. As the means of change. That your religious duty and intentionality and your religious sacrifices are going to be what saves you and makes God bless you. How many of us have thought that's what church was telling us to come to? And church was saying, you've got to come and you've got to do good to earn God's blessing. Jesus is coming in and is revealing the whole truth and flipping it on its head. He's saying the whole heart of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, is not man-centered in what you do for God. It's God-centered in what God does to save you. It's revealing the mercy of God, not the sacrifices of man. Even the whole sacrificial system do you actually think God cares about lambs? Do you think the death of doves and bulls makes God go, okay, you won me over, I forgive you. And even within the Old Testament, like that Hosea reading, God is saying, I don't actually care about this stuff. I'm doing this to help you see why you should care about this stuff. I'm doing this so you see that your sin has impact. That your sin is causing death all around you. And that death is harming you 
and harming others and harming your relationship to me. And so when you're elbow deep in blood, sacrificing a lamb, an innocent lamb to me, you have to see that your sins have consequence. That's the whole point. And all of it is God saying, my heart is for mercy. My heart is to, is to forgive this through the sacrifice I'm going to give to save you. And what's his sacrifice? His one and only Son. What's the lengths to which God's mercy will go to save us from sin? He gives up himself entirely. It's not just a standoffish mercy. It's a get-down-in-the-dirt mercy. It's a die-for-you mercy. It's a give-everything-for-you mercy. Isn't that the true definition of mercy? And Jesus' whole point is to say, isn't this the heart of every passage of Scripture from the beginning up until today? This is a very solid biblical and theological argument that Jesus gives them. So he goes, let me show you where it is with two scriptural examples and let me show you the true heart of the Old Testament and let me say it to you as God in flesh here to give myself in mercy. Is that a good argument? Are you asleep? Is that a good argument? So surely they go, you got us. Right? They hear that and they go, I'm convinced. Is that what happens? No. Now here's the next thing that Jesus does. So in creating a culture in which people can actually be safe, to grow with Jesus and be yoked with Jesus, we do have to do our homework. We have to be able to show it clearly in the Scriptures and do the work to go, look, this is the logic behind it. We're not just making this up. This has been the message all along. Right? You actually can't create a safe environment of church where people change and grow and reject the Scriptures. We need them to show the logic of it, the clarity of it, the consistency of it, to see God's plan of salvation from beginning to end. But then here's what Jesus does next to make this possible. He centers the argument on himself. Verse 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a big statement. Jesus is saying, I created the Sabbath. Take that in for a minute. Jesus is going, I made it. When I created the universe and completed my work, I took the first Sabbath. And it's mine. Big authoritative statement. I defined the Sabbath. I wrote the Scriptures. I commanded the Sabbath. I made the law. I fulfilled the Sabbath as the perfect man. And I give the Sabbath. I give the rest that I achieved. Isn't that big? I love who Jesus is. I love it. The biblical argument and then the real argument of like, I am that I am. Verse 9 says, they went on from there. 
says, what more do you say after that? So the Pharisees at that point go, let's continue walking to get to the synagogue. They went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him. So here's their thought process the whole time. And then they get to the synagogue and they're like, ah, there's Jerry. Jerry with the withered hand. We put up with this guy and we hope there's no Jerry's here today. And we don't like Jerry, but Jerry keeps showing up here every Sabbath. And so here's our moment to catch Jesus. And they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're hard, it says here, so that they might accuse him. So they refuse his invitation to accept his rest. They refuse the biblical evidence. And they refuse the evidence of his authority. And this results in a progressively hardened heart to the point where they unashamedly objectify a hurting man in the gathering. Do you know how gross this moment is? How slimy this is? To dehumanize part of God's creation in front of the gathering and be like, is it okay to heal him today? Ugh, it's gross. And the argument they're making essentially is to break the second great commandment in the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're saying let's prioritize commandment four over, over commandment two. And what they want is they want to say because we've got to keep the Sabbath, we don't do what's good. We don't love people. We don't care for people. We don't value people because we're keeping the Sabbath. Have you ever felt that at church? I've seen that. I've seen older men walk up to younger men and slap the hats off their head. Seen it. I've seen older women shame younger women for the way they're dressed coming to church. I've seen all sorts of stuff. I created a list, but I don't want to read it. The statement they're making is, surely one must not do good on this holy day because that could be considered work. Verse 11 and verse 12, we get Jesus' response. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep. And that's his exclamation point, not mine. He is not happy with their reasoning. So, to answer your ridiculous question, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's the response of Jesus. Jesus is on the side of the broken. Jesus stands between the accuser and the sinner. And isn't this what Jesus does for all of us? Is that the accuser says, look how you failed. And Jesus stands in between you and him and says, but I have succeeded on her behalf. I have succeeded for them. And who are you to accuse? Defiler. Evil one. 
Jesus does not hesitate to defend the broken. And here's what Jesus does then after this statement, is he heals the man's hand because the man is not a pawn in their game. He values the man, cares about him. Imagine how difficult it would be for this man to come to this synagogue week after week after week. Imagine how hard that would be. Despised. Look down on like that physical ailment that you have is a you problem that you created and it's a consequence you deserve. Because that's what the performer says. Any weakness within me, any weakness in my, in my life is a failure on my part. Don't you feel that? And Jesus is saying that it's the opposite. Your weaknesses point to how valued you are by Him. Your weaknesses are saying you cannot live on your own. You cannot accomplish on your own. You cannot be enough for yourself. You can't be God. You need God. And you need salvation. And you need provision. And you need help. And that is not something to be ashamed of. But instead, within the Gospel of Jesus, you're dignified because of that. Do you hear it? Do you hear the good news? You're dignified because of your need. Because it says you are made for God. The Maker of the universe has designed you in such a way that you don't thrive because you aren't in close proximity to Him. That's how valuable you are. It's against your nature to not have Him. Last week I made a joke about people being late for church. But here's the truth of it. If you show up here late, our thought process isn't Come on now. Our thought process is there must have been a thousand reasons for you to not come today. And you still made it. There must have been a thousand of reasons that you went, we're a mess. The kids are a mess. We should turn around and go home instead of taking this hot mess to church. How many times do we feel that on a Sunday? Parenting's hard. Life is hard. You have a week from hell and you go, how can I possibly show my face at church? It's why we show up to church. We limp through that door. We crawl through it if necessary. You could just make it to the parking lot and call somebody in here and be like, I can't make it in the door by myself and we'll come get you. But that's the kind of culture that Jesus is creating in this text of Scripture. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Because Jesus will not be intimidated and Jesus will not be stopped. And Jesus will not let anyone who comes looking for him 
leave empty-handed without Him. So for us as followers, we should not let anyone keep us from Jesus. Now here's, here's my last statement. Verse 14 ends with this. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. That's the response. When they see the goodness, they want to destroy it. So here's the last bit. How do we create a culture that's safe for the broken? How do we be a place in the church that people actually find the rest of Jesus? Is it by hating the Pharisee? Is it by shaming the self-righteous? Is it by judging those who show the Spirit? Is it by kicking them out before they can make a mess? Is that the goal? You can feel inside of you that's kind of our temptation. It's kind of our default to go, yeah, screw all those guys. Get them out of here. We want none of that business here. And we're going to enforce that. Here's the truth. That will self-perpetuate it. It will create it again. In the name of serving the broken, we'll become like that. Because here's the truth of this whole story, is that they need, and this is the beauty of Jesus, is that Jesus is the safe place for the performer inside of us. Jesus is the safe place for the one inside of us that overfunctions constantly. Jesus is the safe place for the part of us that's always trying to be enough. Only He can love that part of you enough to bring it into a state of rest. Because Jesus can speak to that part of you and be like, I know these things are valuable. I know this is good, but it's also twisted and it's heavy, isn't it? And it's hurting you, isn't it? And you can't keep up with it, can you? The heart of Jesus is not just to heal the withered hand. The heart of Jesus is to restore the withered heart of the Pharisee. And I am both these men. I have the withered hands that make me feel weak, but I also have the withered heart that makes me think I don't need Jesus. And so a true, safe community that's Jesus-centered does its biblical homework, makes Jesus the center of the conflict, and doesn't get offended when other people's spirit, the Pharisee or the performer, rises up and attacks. Because here's what that part needs. It needs Jesus. And so if the conflict stays Jesus-centered, then everybody shares in the healing and the restoration. Isn't that a beautiful text of Scripture? So as we turn our hearts to the table, I want you to take a moment to consider both those parts of your heart. The sinner and the saint, the withered hand and the withered heart, both need the same Jesus. So let's take a moment for private reflection.